everyone, Pete George, and we are live on Game Changers with Vicki Abelson. Our guest tonight is Robert Wall. But I can't, Robert, I can't even call you Robert Wall because everybody on my wall is New Bouncer. New Bouncer. Oh, first movie I ever did. Okay, so how, how do you get an iconic, how does your first movie end up being, first of all, starring role, iconic? Everybody in the world was discovered in that movie. Tony Danza, Michelle Pfeiffer, my friend Mike Binders in that movie. How does that happen? Somebody else too is in the movie. Who like else? Fran Drescher's in the movie. Fran Drescher, yeah. Fran Drescher, Stuart Pankin, they had a big cast. Yeah. A really bunch, good bunch of T.K. Carter. Uh, I was I was just came out here as a, a comic, and they were casting for this movie that was going to be a cross between uh, American Graffiti and um, Animal House. That was the intent. Okay. And they had me come in and they watched me on stage. I was doing my act. And then I, I, I saw some... To this day, I've never seen a script for this movie. To this day. I mean, really? this movie, yeah, really. The, the, the script was not... What song do you sing in that movie? Volare. Volare. Right. <laughs> and um, so... Uh, and it taught me a great lesson about how... I, I took with me always that... Uh, the first thing, like I said, to this day, I don't see the script. But, I, you know, so I get the, I get the part. So yeah. wait, wait, before you get the part, what's your audition? Just playing this leader of a Hollywood, of a club, in you know, kids club, in um, in North Hollywood, circus early 60s. So know. wait, so it's it's 1980 No, it's about No, 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 it's, it's, it's earlier than that. It's Vietnam yeah. War. It's 19... Well, no, 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 when, no, when you oh, shot? 1979. 1979. Okay, so you're already, like... You are a formidable stand-up comic. We know who you are. You're on TV. No, I'm no. just starting out. You're just starting out. No, I'm just, I just come out here now. I did come out with a pretty strong act, and I was writing for Rodney Dangerfield, and he brought me out. So it wasn't like I came in, but this is the first thing I've ever had. This is the first gig I've ever had. No, that's not true. Outside of a couple of stock spots of a dating game. The, ah, uh, but, but, did you go on a date? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, we have to circle back yeah. to that. But So uh, wait, do you have a sad part? That got me the sad part. That dating game. No, no. Oh, oh, Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood Nights. Nights. Okay, so you don't have a SAG card. Do you have an agent? Yes. So that's how you get sent up. Yes, Harriet Helberg. Oh, oh, Harriet's really good for hire. It's Sandy well, Helberg. Yeah, I love they are very, Sandy's in the movie, right? Yes, he is. Yes. He's a cop. Yeah, right. very. He's Officer uh, Bimbo and Clark. There you go. The uh, Harriet Helberg uh, mm-hmm. either saw me. She was kind enough to bring me in. I am forever in her debt, and. Uh, and, and, quite a few people. Yeah, no, it was mm-hmm. good. And uh, and and I got the part, you know. So okay, so what? What did, do you remember your audition? I had lived a lot of stuff because I just I forgot. No script. Not much, not much. But what's interesting is okay. So the first day of shooting comes, and I'm not shooting the first day. My character's a shoot, but you know, I figure I'll go to the set in an act of solidarity. <laughs> total, do you do you know the total, other? No. no. I've, I've met uh, Binder, I knew, because of the clubs. Right. So I'm 26 years old, 25, 26 oh years old. Oh, my God, that's so crazy. And I go to the set the first yeah. day, and there's pandemonium going on. And in, in what way? Well, the first day of principal photography means the writer-director gets paid off. <laughs> so that means that yeah. he's in the bag by noon. <laughs> so then I'm watching... This Academy Award-nominated cinematographer, the great William Fraker, who did Heaven Can Wait. Oh, and one of my favorite films of all, all, all yeah. He does all this great stuff. Yeah, yeah. He had worked with Floyd Mutrich, who's the writer-director before, uh-huh. who, again, I'm also indebted to for the rest of my life. Wow. And yeah. 
they're trying to shoot three cameras in a room about this size. Yeah. And it's crazy. And by noon that day, they're over budget. <laughs> so, <laughs> For the whole film. So, I love so, it. <laughs> during was I'm trying to lay low because I'm realizing everybody's screaming at everybody else. So get the, you know. And I don't have to point the finger at me. I don't, you know. It's my fault. I haven't even gotten to, you know, start to say Wait, wait. Who's screaming at who? The executive producer. Yeah. Got me the Bill Tennant. Okay. Is yelling at the producer. Because they're already over budget. <laughs> and he says, with all this craziness that's going on, and I mean it's craziness, I see the executive producer, Bill Tennant, pull over the great Dick Letterer, the decent man, and he goes, okay, tomorrow this shit stops. We're getting a new caterer. <laughs> <laughs> From that moment on, I, I said, boy, oh boy, am I going to enjoy showbiz. I said, if I ever do my memoirs, it should be called, Tomorrow We're Getting a New Caterer. <laughs> That's the guy. He had to do something. That's what these guys do a lot of times, producers. They'll fire just certain producers who make it a habit, that is their routine, that they will fire somebody the first day of the set. Yeah. Whether it's craft services, the caterer, the, a grip, <laughs> they're going to fire somebody so because they, they feel that now the crew will be on its toes. No, it's not a joke. People get, lose their jobs like this. And there's people who do that. There are obviously very... Um, <laughs> Not people who have a lot of self-esteem, but they fire. They'll, they'll make a point every day. Every show oh. they do, they're going to fire somebody the first day. It's oh. just they want them to make a precedent. They make a, they make did, a they, did they keep firing people, or it was just that? Yeah, a few. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, so so you're the leading role in a major in this movie, and you've never done this. Are they directing you? Or? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I haven't known what I had to do, and uh, I had lived a lot, and. Um, it was fine. I had an acting background. I, you know, been to school. You what would you go to school? What, University of Houston. And right. what was your degree? Degree. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I crammed four years into seven. What? The. Uh, <laughs> what were you studying? Uh, well, I was in communications and drama. Uh-huh. And we had a great drama class. Mm-hmm. We had a great job. My classmates: Brett Cullen, Dennis Quaid, Cindy Pickett. Uh, Randy was before me. Um, wow. Tommy, Tommy Toom was taught by the same teacher. Wow. Uh, I mean, we had great people. So now, were you all through? Okay, you're a little kid. You're in New Jersey. No, right? I'm in Houston. You're in Houston. I thought that, you grew up in New Jersey. I did. I went to school in Houston. No, I'm not talking about college. I'm talking about before that. When you're New a little Jersey. kid, you're in New Jersey. You're doing school plays. You always want to do. This. Is this something? When do you know you're funny? How do you know you're funny? Are your parents funny? Yeah, my dad was real funny. Yeah. Your dad yes, was funny. My mother was a great audience too, which is really important. Um, yeah, my brother's very funny too. The uh, I always wanted what I wanted to do was be a storyteller, filmmaker, that kind of thing. I knew that at a very young age. I knew that by the time I was 10. Were you a storyteller when you were a kid? I probably was, yeah. Uh-huh. And so you're in school plays, sorting? I was, and I wrote the school plays a couple of times, the junior show and stuff. It was like a Johnny Carson show and stuff. Um, and then I, then I go to college. And, and are you like the class clown? Are you always class wit. Class I don't believe that the word clown. <laughs> a clown to me, no. Where's makeup? That's different. Well, there were clowns. I wasn't a clown. I was. You were witty. I was witty. I was funny. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, yeah. Clown. I, I never liked the term clown. When did you start doing stand up? After college. Uh, I come back to college. I was writing for some local comics down, uh, local uh, people down, you know. DJs. Okay, let's roll that back. When did you start writing? I start writing in college. Um, what are you writing when you start writing? Mostly jokes for local comedians and local DJs and local hosts and stuff like that. Are Radio you getting paid? Yeah. Nice. And then I come out. And then this was when a 
okay, Catch a Rising Star at first starts getting notoriety. Mm -hmm. And the improv is getting to, Pryor's been there, and mm -hmm. Freddie Prinze has been there, mm -hmm. and David Brenner's been there, and Saturday Night Live just started. Okay. So I'm so like zoomed, I'm, I'm zoomed there, right. Mm -hmm. So I come back, mm -hmm. and I start doing stand-up comedy. At the same time, I start selling, knock on Rodney Dangerfield's door, and start selling jokes to Rodney Dangerfield. And uh, so that gave me, and, and then the other thing was like, I went on the $20,000 pyramid, and, and I won. Oh, so, come on, stop. You won twenty grand. Uh, actually, it was a $10,000 pyramid back then. I won ten grand. You won ten grand. Yeah. And so I had a leg up. Between, between writing, believe it or not, writing jokes for Rodney Dangerfield and winning the $10,000 pyramid in the club scene back then, and, you know, we were all together. We were all, mm -hmm. It was, you know, it was just the club scene then is Jay Leno and Lane Boozler and Richard Lewis had left, so now it was... Bob Shaw, Bob, uh, Jerry, Seinfeld, George Wallace, Larry David, me, Barry Diamond. Paul Reiser. Paul Reiser. This is the whole group right uh -huh. there. So this gave me, believe it or not, these two credits gave me a leg up. <laughs> yeah. So, and, I, and I had a pretty good act. And I could yeah. write. Yeah, yeah. So that's, then, then I came out to L.A. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I started getting work. I got this movie and a couple of things. And, I, and then, you know. I, so did you know when you guys were making this movie that this is, oh, do you no. have any idea what this is no, going to be? No, 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 it no. It looks no. like Kids Playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that said, when we saw, I saw the first cut of it, yeah. it was a better movie. It was a much better movie. Mm -hmm. And I said, my God, this is going to work. And then they tested it, and my character went through the roof. So they said, okay, we're going we're to give you a patent speech in the beginning. You write the patent speech. And I wrote a patent speech, and it bombed. It made me real unlikable. <laughs> so then they took, they overreacted and recut the movie a lot more. And mm -hmm. the movie, the, the first movie, was a much better movie. It, really? Now, this is, it, it has turned out to be a cult classic. Yes. Uh, it really is. I, just, I mean, there are people who have literally watched it a hundred times. No, and they, what ha also what happened was... <laughs> It was one of the first movies on HBO mm -hmm. uh, in the rotation around 1980. Right. And, and it, when people really started getting HBO, and it was in the rotation. So it was on like five times a day. And it's the type of movie that fathers back then would watch with their sons. Huh. Uh, and now, interesting. what's interesting is those sons have grown up, and now they're watching with their sons. And in fact, I was at a uh, New Jersey, uh, one of those uh, uh, chiller theater, one of those conventions. Mm -hmm. In New Jersey two weeks ago, mm -hmm. and I ran, and you know we have everything there, Batman stuff and everything, and the Arliss and Good Morning Vietnam. Right. Ran, ran out of everything Hollywood nights. I'm telling you, everybody yeah. on the thread is talking yeah, about Hollywood, that. It's, it's, it's a funny movie. That was my go-to movie in the '80s. I really? wore it out watching it, and your character was my go-to character. Yeah. I mean, nonstop. E yeah, everybody, everybody is yeah. talking. I about think it. I actually still have the jacket. Oh, I wow. think I have a Hollywood Nights jacket. Oh, that's right. Probably I couldn't fit into it. Probably, mm -hmm. but, but doesn't matter. Sure right? I have it, yeah. Did your did, so? What did your parents think of this success of yours? Well, my dad dies. My dad mm -hmm. dies just as I'm starting out. Um, oh. He saw my first jokes on the Tonight Show, oh. and then and he saw me with the pyramid. And you got, you wrote for you Rodney. Oh, writing for Rodney. Right. Rodney he saw Joe. that, and then he oh. saw me win on the pyramid, oh. and he died that night. <gasps> what? Yeah, he had. He, you know, my family's not the healthiest. He had the diabetes and heart disease and everything. He that dies night. that night. My mother goes to the movies. Yeah. And tells me how embarrassed she is by the character I'm playing. Oh, you know, well, that's a her, that's a that's a Jewish mother. Yeah, because I mean, you know, farting volare and <laughs> doing all this low comedy, and she's totally embarrassed. Yeah. She was totally embarrassed. Did after the reception of it, did she come around? The movie did okay, and it didn't. Was it became it was a big late. hit later? Mm -hmm. It became a, 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 a hit later. We were between Animal House and Porky's. Porky's was a much bigger hit. 
Right. Commercial. At the time. Oh, much Although, who, who remembers? I don't remember Porky's. Right. Yeah, but I'm saying before I met Porky, they did like three Porky's and also police academies. Right. But Hollywood Nights is the better movie. Well, Hollywood ah, I, I should, well, it's, the, it's stood the test of time. What has? Um, and it launched a lot of careers. Yes, launched it did. a lot of careers. Yes, it did. So, Michelle. Yeah, Michelle, Tony, Tony Dancer, right? Yep. And uh, was that Mike Binder's first movie? Sure, it was yeah. 21, so 22. Oh my God, that's crazy. So, okay, so you come off of Hollywood Nights, and you're, you're, you have a little coin. Little, little coin. coin. I had more coin because of the pyramid. <laughs> So, so, and you've already done the dating game? Oh, yeah. That was so now is doing the dating game like a setup because you're really an actor, or is doing the dating game because you're going on? No, home? actors, they use comics and actors all the time. Okay. Because we're self-contained. I was on all the time. I went on one time as Lawrence Talbot. <laughs> if you're the wolf man, that's the talk. I, I came on one time dressed in bandages, like I just got was in an accident, and I had my hand in a sling. They loved me because I was just ad-libbing. They used... Tom Selleck would go on the dating game. Andy Kaufman really? was on the dating game. Uh, Paul Rubens was on the dating game. Dating games paid money. It was a paying gig. Right. And it got you towards your, uh, you know, it paid for your rent. It, you know, a lot of people are on the dating game. So, uh... Wow. I, I wonder if those are archives somewhere. Like, oh, I, there is. I got, yeah, somebody yeah. sent me to, to me the other day. YouTube. Yeah. Really? No, I'm on YouTube. Oh, I got, I, got, I, got, I got one about a week ago. Somebody sent it to me. That's hysterical. But then you had to go on the date, right? Well, you don't have to. I went, yeah, I went with the date and the yeah. chaperone. He got laid. <laughs> the he got chaperone laid. got he laid. He got laid. <laughs> that's when you know times are bad. Oh, that's hysterical. So, so, so you're doing this. You're you're making money. What's the what's the the big dream at this point? You're you you same as well. Make movies, tell stories. You know, work with the best people you can. And, you know, and the Hollywood Nights didn't go anywhere as far as commercials, so I didn't get... I, and did you work again after that? In a movie, a while, but what happened in between is mm-hmm. I kept doing stand-up, uh-huh. and I had auditioned for Airplane, you know, the Zucker Brothers. They came and saw me. Uh-huh. A lot of people, every, they auditioned everybody. I really? Know, for the Robert Hayes part. Uh-huh. Was, and, oh, for the Robert Hayes yeah, part? Yeah, oh yeah, they auditioned everybody. David Letterman was auditioning. I, 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 and, but anyway, they didn't hire me. Mm-hmm. But then they were starting this TV show, mm-hmm. and they asked me to be one of the writers on a TV show. And I said, yeah, sure. So I worked on a show called Police Squad. That was sure. a show, right. Yeah. So I was a writer on Police Squad. So that Was, was that it. your first like TV writing game? Yes. Yes. And we were off the air, and we did six episodes, and we were pulled after four. <laughs> I, I used to do a joke. We were fired so fast, I didn't have time to rip off the supply room. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So. I, but how come I remember that show? It's a great show. Leslie Nielsen. It was, yeah. it was a forerunner to all the Naked Gun movies. Wow. So we did that, and that, that taught me a lot. And then from there, I did not... People are asking questions already. I yeah. didn't get... you know, I, I, had to, I wasn't getting a lot of work then. And then it was about... You're still selling jokes? No. No. No, I'm doing my own thing. Okay. But I am writing, mm-hmm. and I got a couple of screenwriting gigs as far as staff writing. You know, which, like what? I sold scripts. I sold scripts to, you know, I was under contract to Paramount. I oh. saw work for Warner Bros. I worked all this stuff, but I wasn't getting Did any Did any of that stuff get made? No. No. Uh, and then I'm in, I'm, somebody sees me, and Mary Lampert, who was a director, mm-hmm. is doing a video, and she casts me, and I, because I'm doing it, and they said, uh, okay, I'm casting you. You're going to play a studio head with Keith Carradine. You know, Keith Carradine, because we're doing this premiere, we're doing this video, mm-hmm. and it's Material Girl. 
So in the beginning of it, uh-huh. the, the video starts with Keith Carradine playing like Howard Hughes. He's in a you know film room and he, we're watching a screening and he's watching her on you know watching her right and, and he's smoking like this and I'm the yes man next to him saying oh she's great very fast talking oh she's great she's the best she's this you know she's not too old not too old you know it's like so then the song starts. Well, it happened to be maybe the biggest video of the year that year. I have to go. I haven't seen that video in years. Yeah. I don't. I didn't even remember there was a beginning. Yeah. Okay. And so that happened, and then right after that. So does that launch something? Well, I don't know if it launched. It definitely gave you more visibility. What also happened at the time is Barry Levinson. Mm -hmm. I had met with for a couple of. I met with him for Diner. Didn't get Diner, and I met with him for another show of his. Didn't get that. But then he was about this time. He's casting Good Morning Vietnam. And Robin and I were friendly. So Robin had nothing to do with that, but Barry cast me good morning. Now, good morning. you and Robin are from... Okay, so you're doing stand-up out here by that time. So oh, yeah. yeah no, I, so come out, you, I come yeah. out here in 79. Oh, yeah. So you've been here for a while. Okay. Yeah, I've been here about six, seven years. So... Who's Lynn's Material Girl? About 84, 85? Something got to be around there. No, it's earlier than that. Maybe no. it's 83. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so so you get cast in Good Morning Vietnam. That's that's your next film, yeah. your next, and that has to launch stuff. Well, it hasn't been out yet. You know, you did the movie. You had a great time. You don't yeah. know. Remember, at this point, Robin has not had a big hit. Really, He's not had a big hit at this time. All his movies haven't done that well. And but this vehicle, you knew. We were there, and you knew that's all. A lot of it's improvised. Wait, this, is this the wait, wait the one when he's Russian? Uh, when that's he, afterwards. That's afterwards. Okay. The um, okay. So what had he done before that? Popeye. Oh. Ooh. Uh, is Garp before this or I bet for Garp? Garp. Garp I bet for great. Garp too. Garp was uh, great. Was Garp before or after this? Garp had, was had great. To be, yeah. Had to be before this, I think. Hmm. Uh, that had to do well, Garp. Garp, but it wasn't. It, it wasn't a huge hit. It wasn't the explosive hit of Robin Williams. You know, no one ever says, well, I think of Robin Williams, I think of Garp. No, it's Good Morning Vietnam. Yeah. That was the one. That was, uh, so, yeah, yeah. you know, at, at the first part. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that was great. And, you know, you're talking about one of the great human beings of all time who's very much missed, and I miss him. And I know him. We're from the clubs together, you know, mm-hmm. so I miss Robin. So that, I finished that, and then my agent called and said, yeah, there's a baseball movie. You can stay known as a huge baseball fan. And she says, well, there's a new, there's a baseball movie being made. I'm going to get you in to see the, uh, the writer-director. So I read the script, and it's got like two lines for the character. But I, uh, and I, I said, well, what the hell, let's go in and improvise and stuff. And I go in, and I give what Ron Shelton says was the absolute worst audition he had ever seen. <laughs> he said to the casting director, that's the worst audition I've ever seen. Hire him immediately. Oh, stop. Yeah. Why? I was all over the place because Ron was smart enough to know, know what I was doing. He could. I was the comic relief. He could cut to me at any time, and I'd have something to say. And, and, I, and I knew all this baseball jargon. My dad had played baseball, uh-huh. so I knew how to say, "Come, baby, come, baby, here, nobody, nobody, nobody here, nobody. I got you. Take another go, another batter." So I could do all that stuff. <laughs> so, so he cast the movie, and, and, and at that time, there was no star hotter that was on the way up than Kevin Costner. Right. And it had Susan Sarandon in it. Right. And, and Tim Robbins. It was a well, pretty... Nobody knew Tim Robbins. Right, that's Tim true. Robbins, right. Tim Robbins. Wait, let me get back. Tim yeah. Robbins, the only thing knew was from Howard the Duck. That, that, oh, my God. Uh, Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins was not... Wow. You know, Tim had to overcome that. 
<laughs> he had done great work if you saw like five quarters or something. But he was a star of Howard the Duck, and that had taken a oh huge bath. And, uh, <laughs> so, and he was not the studio's choice by any stretch of the imagination. Really? No. Who they want? Do you Anthony, know? Yeah, Anthony Michael Hall. Wow. That is a completely different movie. Okay. Susan Sarandon with Anthony Michael. Come on, that is a completely different yeah, movie. Well, here's here. Well, I gotta tell you, at the time, he said, at the he time, was huge, you, yeah. yeah, at the time, you, no, no. What I'm saying, at the time, if you would have said Tim Robbins and, and Susan Sarandon, mm-hmm. you would have said, like, what? You know, it's like, well, okay, when we were well, on the set, physically they look that That's it's a very special thing. <laughs> Ron Shelton tells me the story. Uh, yeah, we want to hear it. Oh, this is good juice. Yeah. Um, did she get to pick who it was going to be? No, she, she had no clout. Well, they didn't want her either. They did not want Susan Sarandon. Who did they want? They had their list. They had their list. And what happened was Susan had read the script. Susan mm-hmm. was very smart. She had read the script in Italy. Mm-hmm. She knew what a party was. On her own dime, she flies back to California. Wow. Mm-hmm. And as they're having meetings, Susan... Very smart, as Ron Shelton tells the story, wore this really hot red dress to come to her. And she's walking into this, walk by the studio executive, and she's knocking the door, and she's oh, I'm sorry, it's the wrong door. You know, one of these things. She, on purpose, of sure, course, yeah. Sure. And after that, she walked out, they all thought, hey, what about Susan Sarandon? You know, I mean, it's very smart. Um, and they wanted Anthony Michael Hall. And as Ron yeah. Shelton tells the story, told me the story. So they wanted him to fly across the country. He was in New York. Uh-huh. And meet with Ron. No, they wanted Ron to meet with him. Mm-hmm. So Ron flies across the country. They got the Ron. Ron's an ex-ball player. Ron's a guy. Ron's a guy's guy. Mm-hmm. So women adore him, but he's a guy's guy. Uh-huh. And it would be like William Holden type of and Ron goes across the country, and he's a first-time director, so he's got, you know, he's got his problems. Mm-hmm. So he meets with he, Anthony Michael Hoy's supposed to meet at the old Columbus Cafe. So he's waiting enough. He keeps him waiting for a little bit, which is one thing. Ron's getting, you know, Ron got temper. But he can't, but he do that. And then he sits down, and Anthony Michael Hall says, yeah, he goes, did you read the script? No, I'm on page 40. But I got some thoughts. I got some notes. And Ron says, I'll t- I goes, okay, well, when you finish it, you get back to me. So he goes back to his hotel room, and he's furious. <laughs> he is fucking furious. And he tells the agent and the studio guys, I'm not working with this fucking guy. I fucking fly across the country. And he's on page 30, and he's giving me notes. <laughs> and, and, his agent says, and his agent says, Ron, Ron, listen, I apologize. Look, if you stay one more day, I promise he'll finish the script, and you'll talk to him. Stay one more day. He goes, okay. Back the next day, Anthony Michael Hall shows up. He says, "How's it going?" He says, "Well, I'm on page 60. <laughs> and I got to go. And Ron says, "I will quit this movie rather than put this guy in." And then it came. Then there was a lot of people. I remember. I remember Eric Stoltz at the audition. Uh-huh. I remember there was a lot of good actors. Mm-hmm. And when they said Tim, I you know it was one of these things. I did not know Tim. Mm-hmm. And we became friendly on that. And uh, we've, you know, we've, I haven't seen him in a while, but I have such respect for Tim. Tim and Susan both. I mean, they really, they walk the walk and talk the talk. Well, except for what they do politically, but we won't go there. 
for the fact Susan. that they, they, she cost Hillary the election. Oh, I, sure I, she I, did. Oh, she's got that kind of clout. Well, that whole, well, <laughs> she's got that whole, kind of clout. Well, the whole oh, bird, stop, the whole stop, bird, stop. You know, the whole bird are you thing. People, are you no. not blaming Hillary at all for this? No, well, we, we're not, we're not going to talk about Come that. Come on. No. All right. Maybe go to Wisconsin once might help. <laughs> okay, Please. so. All right, so, so. Tell Do you know I have a friend? I got okay. We got to go. Here. I know your father was a Republican. My mom, my mom was, was Republican. Democrat. My mom was a Democrat. I know that. So, and, but, you, but, but, and my, your my, wife's a lefty communist like me. Yeah. <laughs> but, but well, my, but the guy number two, the Republican. I have to qualify that. Yeah. Republican Party in New, in New York, New Jersey. Back Actually, then. my mother's not. She calls herself an independent. Well, uh, but independents always vote Republican. No, they don't. I yeah. don't do that. Are you an independent? Absolutely. And you don't always vote Republican. <laughs> no. Okay, they, you're uh, unusual. Me too. You're an independent. I'm uh, yeah. I'm independent. I'm not registered. Registered. I'm a registered independent. Yeah, but I'm leaning logical. Yeah, that's. What, I mean, here's the difference. Though. Republican back then, you're talking in the '60s or '70s. If there was a liberal wing of this Republican Party. You're talking about Javits. Mm-hmm. You're talking about Lowell Weicker. Mm-hmm. You're talking about Old Man Romney. You're talking about Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. You're talking about this. That it wasn't the Goldwater wing. There was a big liberal wing of the Republican Party, which mm-hmm. now are sort of like Clinton Democrats. So 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 that. So basically, that it's not the same party at all. Now, in fact, in fact, the the Goldwater Republicans wouldn't 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 recognize these guys there. But but uh, uh, as far as oh, so I got a buddy. I'm not going to say his name, and he is convinced. Listen to this one. So he, we would know this buddy. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh sure. <laughs> oh yeah. And he is convinced <laughs> that for seven months now, mm-hmm. that Hillary is going to be the Democratic nominee. Convinced. And he's bet everybody at this card game. I was the first one. He goes, you are better. Make this easy on yourself. <laughs> I said, and, I'm there with a, and I'm there with, you know, just like, I, I'm, I'm, you know, everybody there is, is, is as liberal as a cop. And if they're looking at him like he's from the moon, I go, no, she's not going to be. And I go, you watch. They're going to get all deadlocked. They're going to turn to her. I go, they will turn to El Chapo before they turn to Hillary Clinton on this thing. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, all right, but so... He's, he's got all these bets, truthfully. Really? He made all these bets, yeah. Well. I'm going to eat well. <laughs> I ate well the last election, though. Speaking of eating well, so when, did you become well a food, I, when did you become a foodie? Because we have... Well, that's all Drew. I mean, that's only... That's, that's okay, Drew. Okay, we, we have a mutual friend, Drew Neeporent, who um, I worked with at Maxwell's Palm a million years ago, who owns... Tribeca Grill and Nobu and um, Batard and, and Batard and he's in, he's a James Beard Award yeah, restaurant. How did you become friends with Drew? At Montrachet, okay. I think right after Batman opened, I ate at Montrachet and I fell in love with it. And, you know, Drew uh, came over and we became and we're both huge baseball, you know, huge sports fans. Yes, and uh, we became we become real. I mean, that's that's about uh, it's got close to got to be close to almost thirty years ago. Yeah, he and I go back forty years, and and uh, but and the day that I went to Montrachet, De Niro was sitting there with Tukey Smith, and that was the day they made their deal to do no, to do no to do the plates and the roll. He should have invested. They also yeah, invested. Everybody I was, invested. I was in back in. I, I backed my movie band. Yeah, I try back and go. Try back and go is a solid, quintessential New York restaurant. I we think had a great meal there recently. My I'm daughter works there. It's yeah. a really good. The food is It's excellent. a solid New York restaurant. They have excellent Brussels sprouts. Um, so okay, so so and so food. So you became a foodie because Drew kind of opened your mind, your palate. Well, I always like to go to good restaurants. I mean, I always went to restaurants beforehand. But Drew, you know, the connection with Drew. 
just by osmosis, you know, you, you meet the Jew. In fact, I was very fortunate. What Drew asked me, and I remember the date on this one, this has got to be, could be 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Bon Appetit Awards. Mm-hmm. And this is, I, I'll play the date later. The uh, Bon Appetit Awards in New York is at Restaurant Danielle, mm-hmm. which is, you know, Danielle. I've been. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is as good as it gets. It's yeah. in a private room. Mm-hmm. And so he asked me, mm-hmm. would I introduce him? And, and they flew me back on American Airlines first class for this dinner. And there's only like, I would say maybe 50 people at this private dinner. Uh-huh. And it was a who's who. My barber and I went. It was a who's who. It was Wolfgang Puck, Julia Child, uh-huh. Alice Waters, uh, Dean Faring from the mansion on Turtle Creek, the late Charlie Trotter from Chicago. It was, uh, I'm leaving somebody on Jacques Papin. Mm-hmm. It was a who's who at this dinner. Uh-huh. And I'm there, and it was a great night, and, it, it, and Drew got the award. And I mean, this was a top of the line. This was, I was in, I was this in was food the, heaven. Yeah, I really was. And uh, Daniel Ballou was cooking for everybody. Mm-hmm. And that night was just one of the great nights. And we always remember it because uh, the date was September 11th, 2000. Oh, mm. oh wow. What are you pointing to? The little dog that's in the. Uh... Oh, I didn't see him. Oh. It's Mr. Max. Mr. Max. Hi, Mr. Max. So, um, okay, so food. Th- okay, so, but I want to go back to, to Bull Durham for a minute because, and we hadn't mentioned the name of the movie, by the way, until Bull just Durham. now. Bull Durham. But it was Bull Durham. But I, I, I understand that you um, improvised a line that has become an iconic. Gift and line. Made my life easier. So, so tell us about that. Well, what happened was, um, a week before we were shooting, we start shooting. Uh, a good friend of mine in Houston was getting married, and I called my wife. and said, "Barbara, we're getting for a wedding present," and she stops and thinks, "Well, candlesticks always make a nice gift." Or find out where she's registered and get a silverware pattern. Okay. So then. So she month- says that exact thing to exactly. you. Exactly. Okay. So now a month later. We're shooting the scene on the mound, mm-hmm. and I'm the last scene at night, because um, everything was, the cameras were all going out towards the field. Mm-hmm. Everything was going out towards the field, and I'm coming in from the dugout, mm-hmm. so you have to turn around to get me, so I'm the last scene at 4 o'clock in the morning, and it's cold, because we're shooting in November. Mm-hmm. And they have the whole scene there on the meeting on the mound, and the setup is a, uh, I run out and go, what's going on here? And Kevin's got the line, well, we're, you know, Nuke's father's in the stand. The first baseman's girlfriend has put a curse on the glove. We don't know what to get Millie and Jimmy for a wedding present. We're dealing with a lot of shit here. And my line was, oh, I thought there was a problem. Okay, <laughs> that was the line. Okay. And we shot it, mm-hmm. you know, three, four times. And then Ron mm-hmm. Shelton, and this is all Ron Shelton. Mm-hmm. He said, okay, Robert. It's like, I know you've been sitting in the dugout all night long. You had to come up with something. Okay, one take, say whatever you want to say. Last night. And he goes, run two cameras. And they actually set it up. And they said... Had you been thinking of something? Yeah. I yeah. Okay. And it came up, you know, we're dealing... The first baseman put a curse on the glove. Uh, Newt's father's in the stands. And we don't know what to get Millie and Jimmy for a wedding present. And I took a beat and I thought, said, well, candlesticks always make a nice gift. I find out where she's registered <laughs> and get her a silverware pattern. And I go, okay, let's get two. <laughs> You know, and, and Ron says that's what sells the joke is okay, let's go, come on. 
And, uh, okay, so now, the next day, dailies, we're watching the rushes. It was nice. We're shooting in Durham, and everybody would get together after work at night and watch the dailies, and mm-hmm. everybody would have some, you know, the refreshments would pop out, and <laughs> various illegal things would happen. And uh, we'd all watch it. And remember, you're, you watch the dailies as they're shot. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of the people had left, you know, by the time this had happened. So when this scene came up, and I said that, the place exploded in laughter. I thought, that's awfully cool. I got to see it. There's no way it's ever going to be in the movie, you know, and uh, there's no way. And then I, then later on, Ron invites me to an early screening. Mm-hmm. And I see it, and it's in the movie. And I'm... And I'm, I'm Does my, it, and my, it gets my, a laugh in the audience, of oh, course. My jaw drops, because I have to... This is Ron Shelton, though. Yeah. I know a lot of directors, mm-hmm. writer-directors especially, who would say, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's in character. But I didn't write it. Mm. And it's not staying in my movie. Mm. But that wasn't the case. Now, that said, mm-hmm. the studio wants to cut the whole scene. They want to cut the entire scene on the mound. Why? To their, it, their answer was, it doesn't move the plot. It doesn't push the plot. And Ron Sutton said, what plot? There is no plot in this movie. He said, there is no plot. This is what we talk about. This is what the, It's like diner. What plot? And he said, and the only reason it stayed in, and the, o- the only reason it stayed in is when they did the focus groups. They mm-hmm. filled out the charts. They said, what is your favorite scenes in the movie? It was always number one or number two. Wow. Well, that's the only reason it stayed in. Wow. Your joke did it. That's fantastic. Well, the scene's pretty funny. The other yeah. And it would have worked with the other line, too. It, it just... It just Not as funny, but what yes. What made my life easier is, is that I don't ever have to worry about, cam- about getting a wedding person. <laughs> So you always bring candlesticks when you go to the wedding? People are disappointed if I don't. I just had I just had a, a wedding a couple of weeks ago. Candlesticks. <laughs> Love it. That's hysterical. Okay, so that so you have like you have touches of being iconic all so, over the place. So Good Morning Vietnam opens yeah. up, and then about five or six months later, Bull Durham opens up. So there's two good back-to-back. Yeah. And then I get a call mm-hmm. from Marion Dougherty. Mm-hmm. I know Marion Dougherty is the grand doyen of casting directors. And in the documentary Casting Volume, it was all about Marion. She started the casting director business in New York. Really? There were no casting directors before Marion Dougherty. Wow. She starts, she gave uh, Robert Duvall, Gene Hackman, Dustin Hoffman their first job. She, she liked me. She oh. always thought a light to me. Mm-hmm. So she calls me and she mm-hmm. says, Robert, I want you to read this and... Uh, you know, so I read, and it's Batman. And she says, I want you to come in and meet Tim Burton. And, well, first she had me read with her. Then I read with her first. And then she had me come back to meet with Tim Burton. And then Tim came back and saw an advance of Bull Durham. And he said, yeah, you got the job. So wow. that's a good gig. That okay, was, so now that gig. That Jack, was special. There was nothing like it. There was so, nothing like it. So, so what was that like? First of all, it's London. You know, that's number one. You're shooting the most expensive movie of all time in London. Wow. You know, so you're living really good. Mm. Got Batman per diem there. <laughs> Batman per diem. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like you're traveling on the Concorde. Uh-huh. Uh, so, and I was old enough. I wasn't a kid at this point. You know, I'm, uh, I was like 35, 36 years old. Okay. So I'm old enough to enjoy this. I'm going to enjoy every second of this. Now, now Michael Keaton was a pretty... Unusual. I mean, at the I, time, I adore him, but at he was the a, time, yes, 
It's so funny when you look back now, everybody says, oh, Michael Keaton's the best Batman. They don't remember. After, I remember. If there was social media, yes. had there been, I don't think he would, they would have gotten away with Michael Keaton. Yeah. They would right. not have gotten away with Michael. They would have killed him. Mr. Mum. In fact, I remember being in London. Mr. Mum was playing Batman. Mr. Mum. <laughs> Um, I mean, now I knew Michael from the clubs also. I right. knew how talented Michael was. Right. I had also seen a movie he had done called Clean and Sober. I love that movie. And he is so good. I knew so Michael, good. You know, and he's, that's, he's Michael's a Pittsburgh kid. Wasn't he nominated for an Oscar for no, that? No, no. I think he was. No, no. No? The movie died. The movie didn't go. No, but I thought but he was, was nominated. Not, he was great in that movie. Oh, uh, he's great. And it's, yeah. What's an interesting story sidebar here yeah. is when we were in, uh, we were in, uh, he just had a big hit. He had done, I don't know if he did Mr. Mom from Warner Bros. He had done... With Henry Winkler. He did Henry, Henry Was that Winkler. from Warner Brothers, though? That, I, I know that was... Uh, that was it was... I, I don't remember. It was oh, Flash. Night Shift? Not, no, no, Night no. Shift. Night Shift, yeah. Night Shift, yeah. But he had done Beetlejuice yeah. from oh, Warner Brothers, oh. which is a big hit. Yeah, yeah. So, they also... And he'd done Clean and Sober. How, how much before Batman was Beetlejuice? Mm, was that just... Year or two. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. He had done Clean and Sober in between. Mm-hmm. Um... And it was funny because they were talking. Clean and Sober was supposed to be Tom Hanks, I think. The really? story, the story went. And uh, uh, Mark Canton, who was the head of the studio, told me, this is how things work out. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, Tom Hanks was supposed to do Clean and Sober, I think. And I guess Glenn Gordon Cameron, who's the director, said, you know, I'm not sure if he's the right guy for this movie or not. And so he, Tom gets out of that, and they hire Michael Keaton. At the same time, Robert De Niro is with Penny Marshall. He's going to do this movie called Big. Yeah. And then De Niro drops out, and Hanks goes into that. That's how. That's De Niro how. was going to be the character in Big. Yep. I can't even no. picture that. Well, remember, De Niro at that time was oh. Brando. Yeah, you gotta remember. This yeah. is coming right after Raging Bull. This is coming right after I think King of Comedy. Right about that time, maybe even before. Yeah, but still, the, he seems too old to have done that innocence uh, of big. Maybe I, 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 I look, look. You can't think of anybody but Tom Hanks. Yeah, but that's the way Hollywood stories go. Wow. Okay, so wait. So go back. So you're in London. You're doing Batman. And you go into this amazing set every day. That is Gotham City. I mean, uh, you know, Tim Burton. Yeah, I've been pretty fortunate to work with some really good people. Mm-hmm. Tim is, is, is a different type of artist. He is a stylist. He is an artist. He has a great sense of humor. What is he like as a person? He's he's great. I, I've, I've always had the guy. Is he eccentric as hell? I don't know. No? He's, he's, he's working. I mean, he mm-hmm. has his likes and dislikes. I mean, um, look, my college roommate, you know, I understand artists a little bit. That's my college roommate. You know, it's like so, you know. Julian Schnabel? Yeah, it's my college roommate. Oh, my. My dorm roommate freshman year at the University of Houston. <laughs> so I've, I've lived with these guys. That's crazy. So, uh... Um, when did he become... How? When in, in... Chronologically, did he become... When did he break? He breaks, I think, I guess, I guess, mid-80s, early... Mid-80s, because when I was doing Batman, he's already established as a star. Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. he's already established because we would we'd go to dinner with him and Nicholson and Charles Saatchi and Saatchi and Saatchi. And oh my god! I was in that art world for a split second. That's a bullshit world. You think you think the movie world's full of shit? <laughs> wow, the art world. Whew. How so? Why so? Because it's 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 just a bullshit. It's like anything else. It's like you know you look at somebody go, what the fuck is this? And it's like you know. <laughs> but if enough critics get behind it, or these art, I mean, they're. 
that's enough. I mean, that's a, it's a totally different world. I mean, it's like, and it's totally subjective. Totally subjective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but Batman and Jack. All right, so talk about Jack. So what's it like working with Jack? Nothing better. Now, I only had one scene with him, but I would, I would, we would, he took, a, he took a liking to me, and he allowed me to drive right home with him in his car every now and then. Because it was an hour uh-huh. from Pinewood Studios to uh, to our hotels, and it, it was it was an adventure. It was just a, it was just a wonderful. He was just he, Jack he, was at the top of his. I mean, yeah, he was, he was the guy, and he was also the greatest raconteur storyteller of all time. And he'd have all these great do, stories. Do you and, remember any story he's told? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I once asked him, you know, at that time, mm-hmm. at that time, Meryl Streep was just starting to become the Meryl Streep we know. Really? I mean, well, yeah, I mean, you, you knew she was a terrific actress. Mm-hmm. But she wasn't the god that she okay. became. So, I, but I always thought this woman was special. And I asked you, because Jack had done two movies with her at that point. Mm-hmm. He had done, um, neither one were very successful. Um, what's it called? Heartbreak? What's the one about Nora Ephron? Oh, yeah, yeah. What's it called? Heartburn or something? Heartburn. Heartburn. Mm-hmm. And she had done Ironweed. Yeah, not very successful either. No, they, yeah, were both, yeah. well, they were both good. Mm-hmm. And I said, Jack, what's it like? Because I asked him, because I, I just thought, this one's special. Mm-hmm. Something. And he said, loved it. It's nice to be pulled along every now and then, <laughs> rather than always having to do the pulling. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I love you, Jack. Oh. Yeah. Um. Did you watch him on set? Would you go to watch him? Sure. Oh, hell yeah. Sure. It was oh. fun. Yeah. It was fun. And so was Michael Keaton taking shit? I mean, like I seem to recall there was a lot. Oh, of it was awful. It was awful. Now, now, by the time we got there, we were insulated from it a little mm-hmm. bit in London. We were insulated from that. Was it was pretty good. It's Tim. It was Tim. Um, did you anticipate that it was going to be the hit that it was? I thought it was going to be pretty big. Mm-hmm. I thought it was. Going to be, I knew it'd be released. It was too expensive. It was the most expensive movie of all time up was there. Was it really? Yeah, a lot of people's jobs were riding on this thing, so I knew it would get every opportunity. Um, was it a game changer for you? It sure helped. You know, when you're in a hit movie, you got mm-hmm. kicked. You're, you're yeah. So what happened after Batman? After what did I do after Batman? I did another movie with Eric Idle. Then I did a movie. Um, for Barry Primus called Mistress, which I love. Mistress was Tribeca's first film. Mistress. And it's about, it was it's an independent film. It's yeah. the best work as an actor I've ever done. That's because of Barry Primus. Wow. Um, yeah. who, who's, who, who else is in the cast? Uh, I feel like I've seen it. Let me think. It's about a guy, a young, would-be auteur, mm-hmm. a has-been producer, gets this over-the-hill auteur, young auteur, and they weren't trying to make a movie independently. Mm-hmm. But the three money men all want their mistress to play the lead in the movie. And it was Tribeca's first film. The three, the, the producer was played by Martin Landau, the great Martin Landau. Mm-hmm. And the three producers were Eli Wallach, Danny Aiello, wow. Robert De Niro. Wow. Oh, I did see that movie. And, and the three mistresses yeah. were going Tuesday, I think her name was Tuesday night, believe it or not. Huh? Uh, Cheryl Lee Ralph, the great Cheryl Lee Ralph, and Gene Smart. I mean, and Laurie Metcalf played my wife. And Christopher Walken's in the movie. Wow! I mean, I would go to work every day. I'm gonna go watch that again. It's a it's a good movie. Uh-huh. It's 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 film students 
always come up to me and talk to me about mistress because that's the world they're really in, independent films. Uh -huh. And that's a real independent so film. So what kind of role is that for you that it was the best acting you've ever done? I was a failure as I was this young, would-be auteur filmmaker mm -hmm. who wouldn't give an inch, but I'm having to because of the you learn the nature of the business. And Barry Privates, who basically I was playing, Barry was playing Barry, mm -hmm. and he stayed on me and really got, I mean, that's the best work I've, I think I've ever done. What? Okay, i got to go back and watch that. Have you seen it, Pete? Mm -hmm. I have to go back and Mr. watch it. It's just a good movie. Um, and are you, write, are you continuing to write through I'm this I'm always movie? writing, and I, and I did my own movie. Then I wrote and directed my own movie, uh, Open Season it was called, and we did that in Toronto. And then right after that, I started Arliss. Okay, so how was Arliss something that you had been... No. What happened with Arliss was I was working on my movie over here, yeah. and what happened was HBO, Mike Tolan, mm -hmm. uh, went to HBO with an idea for the spinal tap of sports, as he put it. <laughs> Go from one to another. And Wait, did you play sports as a... I know you yeah, love but I, Yeah, but I played intramural stuff. No. But it was but it was never about that. Your passion was... So who were your teams when you were... I grew up in New York. Um, you know, Mets, Yankees. Yankees, Yankees okay. Mets. I sold beer in the Astrodome when I was in there. The, um, so Mike came to HBO mm -hmm. about uh, this idea of the spinal tap of sports. Mm -hmm. And I had done some work with HBO. They knew me there, Chris Solbrecht. Mm -hmm. And they said, see, you know, they knew I was involved with sports. They said, well, see if you can rob a wall to get involved with writing this thing. Mm -hmm. And they told me the idea, and I thought about it, and I came back and said, look, I, 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 I've seen this on, on the spinal tap of sports. What I'd like to do, though, is there's a world coming out now of sports agents. And Mike Tone was a sports guy, so he knew all about sports agents, and I knew about it. You were pre-risky business. Pre-Jerry McGuire. Pre-Jerry McGuire, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and I knew all about, you know, I knew a couple of things. I said, I'd like to do a satire on the world of sports as told through the eyes of a very self-serving sports agent. Did you have one in mind? Yeah. <laughs> well, if I tell you who it was, I yeah. mean, it wasn't, no, because they were agents. It mm -hmm. wasn't just sports agents. Mm -hmm. To me, it was an agent. I don't care if it was a talent agent, mm -hmm. a real estate agent, mm -hmm. a travel agent. They are, their job is parasitic by nature. <laughs> You have to make a sale and you get a percentage of that sale. There's nothing wrong with that, mm -hmm. but that's what it is. Now, I'm thinking as a writer, I said, I'd do a six-episode miniseries about this. And they said, okay. And they liked the idea. And mm -hmm. uh, they I went off and wrote a script. And it was well-received, but they wouldn't give us the go-ahead yet. They said, okay, let's get two or three more scripts out. And we read about two or three more. And they still wouldn't give us the go-ahead. And then... Uh, what happened was... Are you a, writing this for yourself? It, at the time, they said, yeah, we want you, we want the idea, we want you to play the agent. Okay. So, yeah, I am writing for mm -hmm. myself. So then, if you notice, I had read this, and it's so weird nowadays, because at the time, I had read the art of the deal, Trump, the art of the deal, and I said, this is totally full of shit. <laughs> I said, I don't believe a fucking word of this thing. I, I love it as a template. That we could sh we could narrate and he'll tell you his story, and we can then show what actually happened. So if you look at the beginning of Arliss, mm -hmm. a book spins out, and I say, "My name is Arliss Michaels. Uh, I represent athletes. These are my stories." And a book spins out and it says, "Arliss, the art." And I'm holding a bat over my head. It says, "The art of the super agent." And that picture 
is directly from from <laughs> Trump. <idea>. Absolutely. <laughs> now we, we later on got away from that because I didn't, just like Seinfeld got away from the monologues. We realized as you get better, you don't need to have as much narration. Right. So voiceover, but that's what happened. That's how. Wow. It happened. And finally, Michael Fuchs, who was a sportsman and would not give me the green light, he got he was replaced by Chris Albrecht who first put me on stage and Chris says I'm not a sports fan but I think this is funny I think he's saying something and that's when I, that's how I got to go ahead hmm. and you you were actually groundbreaking in a lot of ways you were because you weren't just talking about sports you were talking about Sexuality. I mean, there were all kinds yeah, of issues. Well, yeah, but, but it was all sports. I, yeah. the, the best thing was that I, I grew so much because, yeah, it had to be a comedy. It had to be a comedy. Yeah. But I said, I can go other places here. I'd like to get a little darker in certain places. I, I like mashed, you know, like, uh, so. Um, and uh, Were you the first series of a kind on HBO? No, no. Larry what, what? Sanders had been before us. Uh-huh. And uh, First and Ten and uh, Dream On, they had had those before uh-huh. us. So they had had those series. I came in the next wave. Just, uh-huh. I was in. I was probably with. It was me. Then Sex and the City was the next year. Mm-hmm. Then Sopranos, and then Six Feet Under. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened was, I got. I realized the best compliment, and I would get compliments. Uh, the best compliment I got one time was at the Tribeca Film Festival at the big dinner, and uh, Fran Leibowitz comes up to me, chain smoking, and says. I hate sports, but I love your show. <laughs> and I said, thank you. I go, but it's not about sports. It's about characters in the world of sports. Mm-hmm. That's totally different. It's not about a big game or some crap like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's why most sports movies fail. They're always told from the point of view of the fan. The fan. The fan only cares about one thing, whether the team wins or loses. That's all they care about. They don't care, they don't care how you did it. With the, that's all they care about. Like Ron Shelton said, I didn't know what the fan thought. Because he was an ex-ball player. So I knew what the guy at second base thought. He was thinking, I'm trying to keep my job. And that's what Arliss was. Arliss was a guy. See, my father had a business. So what I thought he was fruit hold, they were fruit distributors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's family business for generations, still around. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Who's running it? Uh, not, not the family anymore. Mm-hmm. But uh, some but it's still around and it was very successful. But I knew about what business was about and I knew about getting people paid and I knew about you know what's going to happen and I wasn't going to fall into some sentimental bullshit mm-hmm. so uh, yes we did stories about my favorite stories are about Ed Asner playing an announcer that's coming down with Alzheimer's because mm-hmm. my father-in-law had Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and then I love the domestic abuse and I love steroids and I love gay athletes and I did transgender athletes and we did alcoholism we did because I love the you know when I hear these stories about People who are hammered, you know, they get drunk on the tour mm-hmm. or drunk in something, and then they sober up and they talk about. But I go, what happens if they don't win, though? I go, what if they win? It's like this came out of a conversation with Richard Pryor. We all had, you know, about getting fucked up and going on stage, mm-hmm. and you can be really funny, and then you sober up, and maybe you're not so funny anymore. It does happen. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, well, let's let's do that with a woman golfer. And uh, the and the LPGA was so happy that I they overcame they came out to support the show and be in the show wow. because at the time and this is nineteen late nineties mm-hmm. I was the first one they go we are so happy you are doing a show about the female tour and you're not talking about lifestyles you know it wasn't about lesbians on the tour that's all they were worried about wow. and I said no it's about a golfer and I and, and I would always say uh, I don't I, I don't I'm, I'm, I'm playing the reality of this thing. Mm-hmm. I was playing the reality. It was, it was a story one time about a replacement player. Yeah. Uh, a replacement player with the scabs who took over for the ball players when they went on strike. Uh-huh. And um, I knew that... So, in the story, 
Arliss represents all the big stars mm-hmm. in baseball. Mm-hmm. And the, a lot of these guys were the, head, the leaders of the union. Mm-hmm. And they hated the scams, obviously. And Arliss gets locked into his car and explodes. And he gets out of the car. A guy breaks the window, and it's a scam ball player. And it's a, he asks Arliss to represent him. And I said, you know, and the writers who are, remember, and they say, well, how are you going to do that? They go, so you're going to represent him? I go, absolutely not. I go, no, that's TV shit, if you believe it. Arliss is going to give up his two biggest clients or three biggest clients to represent a guy making a minimum. That'd be like saying you're going to give up, you know, you're going to, you're going to give up uh, Roger Clemens and, and, and Barry Bonds so you can represent Joe Schmo over here. You're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. It's just, but now he does help him get an agent. Mm-hmm. But I said, but I remember those meetings in the writers room. I said, no, there's no way he could help him, but there's no way mm-hmm. he's going to sacrifice his business mm-hmm. for this. That's just not real. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he, it's uh, so, um, you know, I loved him. I got to tell stories. And, I had, and then I had a little bit of a secret weapon. What was that? When we cast the girl, when I cast the girl, uh, there were two women to play his assistant mm-hmm. that were, uh, I can say the names now, there were two women that came down to the finalists. One was Lauren uh, Graham, mm-hmm. who later went to be the star of the Good Gilmore Girls, mm-hmm. and the other was this girl out of Canada named Sandra O. And I watched her and I said, you know, I think she's funny. And, and this may be sad, I was very conscious of being in the sports world I wanted the cast to have as much diversity as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. So I had Michael Boatman, and I said, I, I go, I, I'm, I'm in this world of sport, of athletes. There's all minorities and diversity mm-hmm. in athletes. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's better. And also, you know, I, I, I don't know what she's going to give me, and I like that. And so the first year, and then I knew, she, I, I just watched her work at how, how she was getting better and better and more confident. And then something else happened was, this was by... Necessity. Mm-hmm. Sex and the City starts uh, opening and explodes, mm-hmm. and it's on before us. Mm-hmm. And HBO doesn't like that I'm losing a lot of that audience, because when we first started, we were maybe 23 percent female, mm-hmm. and here comes Sex and the City, and I'm losing a lot of the audience. Right. And I got to stay on the air. Right. So I start gearing stories more towards Sandra, her clothes, everything towards it. I just just by necessity, and it just turned out really great. Mm-hmm. In fact, by the end of the of the run after seven seasons, I was fifty three percent woman. Wow! Yeah. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. discovered Sandra? Well, I, I hired her. I now discovered. Was she? Well, I mean, was she? She had done a movie I'd seen, an independent film called Double Happiness in uh, Canada, mm-hmm. and uh, she's very good. And I just I like the energy. Mm-hmm. I liked. She was a theater person. I'm very partial to theater people, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, and, and she knew where, she was funny. Mm-hmm. And she was committed, and uh, I always thought from the get-go, I, you know, like, uh, I, I just thought, I thought she was mm-hmm. really, really good. And I was going well, to give her as much as I possibly could. Interesting. 53% female is crazy yeah. percentage for a sports show. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, it wasn't well, about like, sports. Right, but it wasn't about sports. It was about the characters. I love that. Um, so, okay, so, so Arliss has its long run, um, what happens? And you're still? Are you still? What are you doing? Other? Are you just? Yeah, I'm ninety percent on Arliss. I'm doing okay. a little stand up on the side because it took over my life. Did you? Did you do stand up all the way through? Yeah, but um, but I was, 
it was hard because I only got about three months, or two, three months off, and I was just involved in this thing. Right. So it was really hard. And we always go to Europe for vacation. So mm-hmm. it was basically all that. Mm-hmm. And then it ends, and I'm not sure. And I'm really trying to try to develop a couple more scripts, get come close to directing, mm-hmm. which is where my heart is because I did all that in Oros. And um, and then I came up with this idea. I, I told Chris off. I go, Chris. I got an idea about doing a history thing, about doing this history monologue in front of a real classroom. Okay, I, so what? Where was that born? What? Why? Where did that come from? I, you know, there was. Just a, I mean, it comes from growing up, and, and like most, it came out of a couple of things. One is I like history. Two is, I used to watch a show called You Are There, which was in the early days of TV, and it was mm-hmm. like reenactments. Walter Cronkite would host the show, and, oh, and they got all historical elements. Yeah. Uh huh. I think John Frankenheimer used to direct these episodes. I like that. There was also a show called Sunrise Semester I've ever watched. Oh, God. And all these shows, mm-hmm. and I thought there was a way to teach, there was a way to do a monologue, mm-hmm. a document, to make the history kind of funny if you could make it. And, and the fact that it was on HBO, I could curse. And, uh, which, was, which was when you're dealing with students, is, is good. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just thought I could make my points across about history. And uh, with not being political, because most people have no idea. They still didn't. Can you tell us a favorite story from from uh, well, assume the position? Well, it was, it was all. It was a lot of stories. It was the whole thing about um, Paul Revere and uh, you know about you know Paul Revere you know, wrote you know the, you know the story about him you know how why did long it was it, my whole take was that history is pop culture. That pop culture dictates history. Interesting. Yeah, because like we always, like, I started the class by saying it. We all grew up with Columbus, you know, went before Isabella, and he was going to prove that the world was, of course, it was round. Like, okay, now, this is 1492. They've invented the globe. This, this is bullshit. It's total bullshit. The story. I said, where does it come from? It's like, and it came from because history is pop culture. And at the time, the biggest pop culture figure in America was Washington Irving. Mm-hmm. Washington Irving was the, like I said, he was the Spielberg. Tarantino <laughs> of that moment. You know, what is media back then? Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, there's no movies, TVs. Right. No, you have a town crier, and mm-hmm. his 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 circulation is about fifty yards. Mm-hmm. And then you got and you have books. And Washington Irving becomes the young, hot, hip guy. He writes the he writes the the Knickerbocker Tales, mm-hmm. and he writes Rip Van Winkle, mm-hmm. and he writes The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, mm-hmm. and he is the guy. Mm-hmm. He is the guy. He's the Beatles. And his next thing he did, he wants a worldwide audience, so he figured to get this get a worldwide character because he's America's first worldwide author, and he decides to write about the life and times of Christopher Columbus. Mm-hmm. He makes it a three volume set because he knows he's got sequels, <laughs> and in and in this book, he makes up this bullshit story about going before Queen Isabella, and you know, wanting to prove the world is round. And I and I go into that. I talked about how. I go to a theory that I call the Liberty Balance theory, which is based on a movie called The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. Sure. Where when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And that's what happens. This legend becomes so popular that it becomes fact. And it's not true at all. But the same thing with Paul Revere. Uh, Paul Revere comes out of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, mm-hmm. who wrote the poem, Listen, my children, you shall hear midnight right of Paul Revere. Mm-hmm. Well, the guy who really wrote was a guy named Israel Bissell. Is that so? Israel Bissell went, Paul Revere went 13 miles and got caught. Really? The other guy did 200 miles. Bissell, is he a Jewish guy, Bissell? Uh, no, no. Bissell, he's, of course <laughs> he's the, a Jewish but, guy. But, yeah. but, it goes to my point, yeah. Longfellow is the pop culture figure at the time. 
He's done Hiawatha. He has done, you know, uh, all this great stuff. And uh, the House of the Seven Years. So he says, he says, you know, he's not going to, which is better, listen, my children, you shall hear the midnight right of Paul Revere, or come along, kiddies, daddy's going to whistle, tell you the story of Israel Bissell. <laughs> you know, he's, you know, we, it, it's, it's pop culture, and that's what happens. So I did this thing, and the kids loved it, and the students loved it. It was incredibly well-received, best thing, but most well-received thing I ever did. Really? I got nominated for the uh, Writers Guild Award. I did another one, and we were about to do another one, but then they had to change over at HBO mm -hmm. because uh, there was an incident in, well, We'll go into that, but uh, uh, the, the CEO had to leave the company, and the next the next group didn't want to go ahead with it. Uh -huh. So that's that. And uh, how about those two ladies over there, Pete? Can you show those? Uh, well, let's. Can you can you give a little view of? Uh, oh, don't we got do called? that. That's... Yeah, let's show those because those are very nice looking ladies that you got over there. So so, how did your relationship with uh, Billy Crystal start? During the time when I couldn't get arrested. Thank you, Pete. Uh, one of the things I did, my manager also represented uh, Colwyn, and Carl's you know, wife. Oh, that's nice. Carl's great. He's one of my heroes. Uh, and uh, Estelle. Estelle does her act. Right. She was a singer, so mm -hmm. she was singing at the maybe I think it was the Gardenia Room or something. Mm -hmm. like maybe not. It was upstairs somewhere. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they were looking for a comic for an opening act. So my manager had sent Carl's tape, my tape, and he said, "Okay, and do it." I said, I'm going to open it for that. Okay. So I go there. Wait, when is this? Ooh, this is 80. When did we do I mean, you were already like a movie star. Not at this point. I'm not. No? No. I, I don't think. Batman's not out yet? No. No. No, no. Okay. When do I do. Well, Billy asked. But anyway, so I went on. This is going to be in the mid 80s. Okay. Maybe towards the late 80s. I might have done Good Morning Vietnam. I don't think it's out yet. Okay. So I'm looking at like 87. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, the first night the show, mm -hmm. Estelle's, you know, the show, all of her friends come out. So it's like I'm walking out there, and there's Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft, <laughs> and there's Billy Crystal and, and Janice, and there's Chris, uh, Christopher Guest and Jamie Lee Curtis. And over here is a Carl Reiner. I mean, so oh it's like, oh, who's who? I do my act. Uh-huh. It did pretty well. So I knew Billy's manager, David Steinberg, quite well. Mm -hmm. And I get a call a couple of months later saying, hey, uh, Billy's going to be hosting the Grammys. The uh, Grammys? The Grammys. Okay. And he says, uh, would you want to work with him? I said, yeah, sure. So the two of us. And did you know Billy from? Not no. really well. Okay. I knew him, but not, not well, mm -hmm. no. And so we started working together on the Grammys, and we had a great time, and it went very well. And then we asked him back again, and he did it again. I don't know if he did it two, he did it two times or three times. We worked well together. I don't remember the, gra I don't remember yeah, the Grammys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember the, this is Michael Jackson time. This is, wow. you know, we had to give up our booth to Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. The uh, I remember Whitney starting the show with uh, I Just Want to Dance, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so then Billy gets a call to the Oscars. And he asked me to join him. And it was just the two of us. You know, it's like, it's like doing his stuff. It's like I look down and I look at the writers and they had 16, 18 writers. It was only the it two of you? me and Billy with an assist from David Steinberg, his manager. is very funny. Uh, oh, I've okay. met David. Okay. You yeah. did that whole thing with the with the song montage? That comes, that, that comes okay. the next year. Okay. Okay, so we do the we do it the first year. It was really And it's literally just the two it of us. It was just the two of us. I have. Ne I mean, I know people that were Bruce Valanche and Carol Lanch, and all these well, people. Well, Bruce joins the next year. 
Okay. Bruce joins the team the next year. So okay. there's the three of us. Okay. And that's the year of Jack Pouts. Oh, And that's God. the year where everything goes right. <laughs> and it's the best show. Ever. It was a good show. No, that's it. Uh, what's funny is that I was now doing stand-up again. I was in Lake City. And we get nominated for an Emmy for writing the, and it was best comedy, best variety special. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't for those best variety program. It wasn't a special. Uh-huh. And I'm in Atlantic City and I'm flying back for the, I'm supposed to fly back for the Emmys. And I, and I didn't want to get up. And I, and I said, oh, we're not going to win this thing. I go, first of all, we shouldn't win. It's how we're up against Saturday Night Live, In Living Color, all these shows that have to put the show on weekly. Right. We did one show. Now, what I don't know at the time is you can only submit one right. they, show. They each submit one show, right? Yes, yeah, so it's like, well, it's tough to beat the Oscars with all that star power when everything went great. Right. And the ad libs, everything went great. The show, it's tough to beat the Oscars of that kind. Of, um, and so we win. We won twice. Um <laughs> How, so what's that moment? What's that moment? It like was cool. I regret my acceptance speech. Yeah, it was a smart. No, because I, I should have thanked, been more sincere. I did a smart ass line. It doesn't mm-hmm. play well. I'm sorry I did that. Uh, but I'm not gonna live with it. The uh, but it was cool. Uh, and then I did. We did it a, a couple of times. And, mm-hmm. and then Mark Shaman joins us, so we could do the songs. And that was great fun. That was great fun. That was crazy. Um, so memorable. I can't remember any other Oscars other than that. Uh, was, was, was pretty, we had the right idea. I always thought, mm-hmm. Billy and I, we, we, you know, we were in focus on this point. You know, it's the whole show. Mm-hmm. But we always said, it's not the Billy Crystal show. It's not the whole show. It's the Academy Awards. You just happen to be the MC. Mm-hmm. And I think that advice mm-hmm. is well spent and again and I wish I think the shows would all be better if the host took that advice mm-hmm. it's not your show mm-hmm. just it's if you're not there it doesn't make a difference the show's going on mm-hmm. and I have to say every one of the hosts they stop the show and do these bits they don't yeah. give a shit the audience doesn't give a shit about they the bring bitch. in food from the outside they, they don't do give food. a shit about that yeah. you can remember the Academy Award show okay this it's a very unique show People have to be there, okay? I think it starts here about 5 o'clock. Mm-hmm. That means that the people have got, got start to get ready about noon. Mm-hmm. They get ready. They spend a lot of money, most people in that audience. Right. Because right? the studios are only paying for the stars. Right. Everybody else, is, it's costing them five, $10,000 to go to the awards. You've got to get the wardrobe, and you've got to get the tickets, first of all, that cost a couple of thousand dollars. And you've got to get the limos, and you've got to buy your, the, 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 you gotta get your makeup done. You've got to get the, the, the new outfits. Everything. So then you've got to get there. For that, because you have to get into the place, you got to get there about two and a half hours early. So you got to get through that. By the time you get to your seat, you, you, you've been there about two and a half, three hours. You don't eat. You got to go to the bathroom. And now this show starts. So your first 10 minutes is what's good. And then you have to remember something else. With every category that goes by, 80% of the people in that audience, in that category, have lost. And they're not looking for, they don't feel so funny anymore. They don't. It's really hard. So when you stop the show and make it longer, and they got to go eat, and they got to go to the bathroom and everything else, you're really doing yourself a disservice. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's you know by the time they end the show, it's like you're exhausted. So the the key is is it was it's and they do these bits. They stop and do bits. It's like it's not your show. It's the Academy Awards. It's just just do it. Do your stuff up front. Mm-hmm. You got enough boring songs you got to listen to anyway. 
You know, and you have all these songs that no one's ever heard of to begin with most of the time, and you got one Disney one that you know it's going to win. So it's like, you have to get through this stuff. Don't stop this show. The show do a clever bit. I'm sorry as much as I love Jimmy. Don't go next door to see the, who's, who's playing the next door. I'm sorry. It stops the show cold. Mm-hmm. When we would start to do the show, it would come in 3.03. They were going 3.05. I don't know if we ever went more than five or six minutes over. Now they're going close to four hours. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a unique show to do. Mm-hmm. The great thing for me in that show, this is what I remember. I mentioned I wrote the stuff with Billy. Now you have other people writing other stuff in the show, the, the stuff for the presenters or speeches. Mm-hmm. And that year, the Gil Case, the late Gil Case, may mm-hmm. rest in peace, uh, the writers he hired was Hal Cantor, uh, Ernst Lehman, and Mel Shavelson. Now, uh, the audience probably doesn't know these people, but Hal Cantor was one of the great comic writers of all time. Mm-hmm. Mel Shavelson was another great comic writer, wrote a lot of the, um, the Bob Hope movies, mm-hmm. Jerry Lewis movies, a lot of great comedies, Seven Little Foys and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Ernst Lehman, if you're a screenwriter, Ernst Lehman wrote Sweet Smell of Success, mm-hmm. Somebody's Up There Likes Me, mm-hmm. Executive Suite, mm-hmm. West Side Story, Sound of Music, wow. Screenplay of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, wow. The King and I. Oh my! North by Northwest. But wait, none of those are funny. No, North by Northwest. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's 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 like so. I got to talk with him, and he was. He was surprised I knew, and it's like, so I wanted to talk to him about North by Northwest and writing mm-hmm. Family Plot and writing West Side Story and, 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 and all these, and so I mean, that was my, I mean, I loved that. Mm-hmm. That's what I remember about the Oscars. Wow. But, okay, so none of those movies are funny. Well, they have to be, well, I, would, I would definitely disagree with you. You don't think Sound of Music has any humor in it? Sound of Music has You don't think West, North by Northwest yes, doesn't have humor yes, in it? Yes, it's clever as hell. You know, it's All like, right. you know, yeah, this, yeah. Is a, this is, you know, no, this is a, by the way, he's not writing the funny. What's he writing? He's writing the other stuff the presenter's got to say. Mm-hmm. He's writing stuff that they're saying that, you know, about movies and about the, everything. He's not writing anything Billy's saying. Oh, that's right, my job. Right, 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 right. You know, so... Mm-hmm. Um, but the presenters, they always try to make them clever, too, and that often fails. But And that's mostly the presenter's fault, I think, a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And nothing pisses a writer off than say, hearing, hey, I didn't write this. It's like either do it with conviction or don't do it. Mm-hmm. End of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Do it with conviction. You're an actor. Mm-hmm. Or don't do it. Mm-hmm. Just say something else. You know, don't do, hey, I didn't write this shit. Boy, who are you going to throw under the bus next? <laughs> you know, it's like, that's always amazing me. It's about, uh, that's why I like the Tony Awards better than the Oscars sometimes. Because, first of all, it's much more theatrical. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I'm going to have these passionate speeches. I want to thank my third grade gym teacher, the drama <laughs> teacher. I want to thank my partner. I want to, th- I mean, it's much better, much more dramatic. And they're not as, you don't get, you know, there's no poly, there's no balance of politics on the Tonys. Mm-hmm. It's all one way. But the Oscars occasionally you get a little politics in there, and I, I am not of the opinion that that some people, that the, the, the awards are not the place for politics. I think exactly the opposite. <laughs> I think if you're going to get the if you're going to have a protest about something, why wouldn't you see? What do I want to do? Do I want to get on a street corner where I got five people, or do I want to have fifty million people to hear my bitch? It's like. What are you talking about? Well, why Orlando, are you, the first. Why probably. are you treating this like it's some holier-than-thou thing? It's a trade show, people. That's what it is. I mean, it's the world's greatest trade show. 
I support it. I support the Academy. I think the programs are great. But those awards are say, as, as Tommy Lee Jones, when we did cops, said, yeah, those awards are worth money. It's like, I got, I guarantee it. Let me just, let me just turn on my computer. Let's see how many, just want to take a guess. How many lobbying things that I get from the Academy today just now? While we're on the air. While we're on the air. Here we go. Oscars. Motherless Brooklyn. So and so. I guarantee I got 15 more that came today. They lobby for these awards. Yeah. It's no different than a political of any kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They are spending tens of millions of dollars mm-hmm. because it's about business. Mm-hmm. It's about business. Which is why, you know, which is why in my, like I told on Gilbert, uh, I have certain rules that I vote for with the Oscars. So they're worth money. Uh, they're, these things are worth money. Wait, wait. What do you mean? Uh, how I vote in the Oscars. So what are your rules? Okay, one, who's my friend? First and foremost. First and foremost. <laughs> Love it, yes. You don't, first of all, you don't really believe that this award is affirmation of what the best is? Really? You want to go back and look at some of the best pictures in the last 10 years? You wouldn't watch them again. So anybody, there's no such thing as best. If you're nominated, Absolutely. Right, you're in a good category. Yeah. However, this is a business. Okay. And I want my friends to do well in business. I, I want them to yes. have hospitalization the rest of the career. I want them to have... <laughs> Was, so, so you can watch five movies right. and your friend... Not the best performance. No, I didn't say that. No, 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 no. I did not say that. Okay. First of all, why are you putting the judgment on who the best performance is? No, I... My dad would say this when he watched the Oscars. He'd say, how can somebody be the best actor this year and he's not the best actor next year? He didn't forget how to act? He goes, no. He goes, I'll tell you who the best part is. He says, if you let everybody play the same part, I'll tell you who the best performance is. I said, not even then, Dad. You can have different interpretations. So there was nothing saying to me about who the best performance is because a guy acts like a mentally ill guy... Ooh, is that, I don't vote for mentally ill guys, okay? Everybody does mentally ill, or alcoholic, or they have a challenge. How many times is comedy? I'm voting for Eddie Murphy. That's my best actor vote right there. I don't, I don't, I, I don't vote that way. And so all things being fairly equal, mm-hmm. what do I care if another Brit gets a goddamn fucking Oscar? I want my friend getting the nomination. He's going to have hospitalization. Or, the, or, the, or an actress who has been in cattle calls her whole life. And now she's going to get. She'll be able to work the rest of her life. Getting an Oscar nomination does not mean you're going to be a star, but you'll get work the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. That's rule number one. Who's my friend? Mm-hmm. Number two, hard fast rule. Actually, this is probably number one. No kids. <laughs> no kids under any circumstance. Not there is no circumstance. So, somebody just commented, "Won't vote for kids." Before no, you said that. No, no kids <laughs> under any circumstances. Under any, any circumstances. I think it's like, it is ridiculous. You know, when people say, well, it's a performance, it's not a lifetime achievement award. I go, totally disagree. It is a lifetime achievement award. Mm -hmm. I talked to my friend who uh, writes obituaries for the New York Times. I said, what goes into your first line? He goes, their biggest accomplishment. I go, so when your obituary is written, the first line is written, the day you get that nomination or Oscar, that's a lifetime achievement award. Mm -hmm. No matter what you do the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. That is a lifetime. So that's not true. And also with the kids... It's like Bill Parcells, the great coach of the New York Giants, used Mm -hmm. to say, can somebody win a couple of games before you put them in the Hall of Fame? (laughs) How many times have we seen somebody, oh, what a great, I watched, I saw a lobby. I I was at a party, a lobbying uh, vote for that movie, The Beasts of the Southern 
wild or whatever it's called, come mm -hmm. here, that bayou. Mm -hmm. And I sat next to the dinner table with the little girl who, who, who was the lead, six years old. Mm -hmm. And everybody said, so what She's playing on Game Boy. And I'm watching this and I'm going, are you people really going to vote? You're going to take away a nomination from a woman who has done 10 years in craft, probably had a bus tables, had to do all kinds of shit jobs and take shit parts for this girl, for a little girl who, who the director says cry. And it's, it's like under no circumstances. And you know what? I have ne So if I miss Jodie Foster the first time out... She'll grow up and become Jodie Foster. But I also have to, have to worry about all these other little kids who you give a nomination, you never hear from them again, and they took it away. No kids. No hard, no circumstance. You could not find me a circumstance where I would vote for a kid. Or a first-timer. I won't vote for a first-timer either. Wow, okay. Don't all do right. that either. Okay. I want to see a couple more. I want to see more. Until I give you this Lifetime Achievement Award, and I define it as a Lifetime Achievement Award, you know, I want to see more. I want to see a second at bat. You hit a home run the first time, fine. I'm not putting you in the Hall of Fame yet. <laughs> that's the way. I, that's just my. That's the that's way. That's you vote. Okay. That's the way I vote. All right. Yeah. All right. I, I heard also somebody was asking you on an interview if if Fran Drescher ran for office, would you vote for her? And they said she didn't know the three um, branches of government, and, and you said loyalty is first. I would vote for her. Loyalty. Yeah. Loyalty. Yeah. Loyalty's high up there. Loyalty's, I like Loyalty's that. Loyalty's high up there for me. I like that. I don't, you know, again, vote for her. I, I don't remember if I, what I said here. Lo I'll just say loyalty is very important. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, you're not going to make her the governor or anything. I mean, I would hope, Robert, but... Uh, I don't know. How much worse could they be than Robert? <laughs> no, well, there you go. Um, okay, so the, that's your criteria for voting. I'm, uh, all right. Now, is this something... By the way, all the people are voting for are all worthy. It's not like I'm voting for some. I mean, if you if, if you're, you're nominated exactly, for an Oscar, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and like I said, if you look back on movies five years ago and you say, "How the hell did that movie beat that movie? How the hell did this movie beat this movie?" You know, it's like, are you serious? I mean, it's like so. It's all you know. You look in the past and say they didn't win the award. That it's it's so that's you look at. But it's all, a lot of people like you voting their hearts and, and yeah. I'm just saying, but yeah, and they oh, and there's something else too. They always, you know, I think, up to about two years ago, there was not a woman, there was like one or two women over 35 that had mm -hmm. won an Oscar mm -hmm. in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. All the parts go to the who, okay, whose turn is it this time? Mm -hmm. Is it Reese Witherspoon's turn? Is it Anne Hathaway's turn? Mm -hmm. Is it so-and-so's turn? Is it this one's turn? Is it that one? It's like, you know, it's and then these critics and these reviewers, and, uh, you know, they all get caught up in the whole game. It's a game. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's a game, and, and I support the game. I think it's great. I, I love it. Uh, but, I mean, I, you know, I look at it slightly differently. In, in a no less, you know, all these people that are putting all these monies into these, the, the, these campaigns, mm -hmm. there's movies I get campaigns for that, uh, you know, it's like there's no chance that it doesn't make a difference. That's in their contracts. And the studios are putting all these millions of dollars because they want million dollars coming back. Mm -hmm. I asked my friend who runs one of the independent film, uh, one of the companies, how much is an Oscar nomination worth? Mm -hmm. What is a movie? And he would tell me, $10 million for this thing, $15 million wow. for this, $20 million for this. So it's all business. It's mm -hmm. not show art. It's show business. Mm -hmm. So this, again, it doesn't negate the quality, mm -hmm. but anytime I can get comedy in there, which my, that's always been my thing with the Academy. Why isn't your best comedy? 
why is there a category for comedy? You got categories for animated films, mm. short subjects, live and animated. <laughs> you got categories for everything, yet not comedy. Mm. It's a Very different animal. It's a different animal. Mm. And the late, great uh, Tom, oh God, remember our senior moment. We used to work. Tom Sherrick used to be the president. Tom Sherrick is my cousin. Oh, was he? Yeah. yeah. Thomas Grace played off the Tom. Mm. And uh, and Tom. I'd say Tom, and he goes, and Tom was a distribution guy. And, but he was the president of the academy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but he was uh-huh. a distribution guy. Uh-huh. And even Harvey Weinstein, you know, for where, and Ron Howard, we mm-hmm. all, Harvey said, I'd love to, and, and Tom said, I'd love to have Best Comedy. I could market that. I could put, you know, nominate for Best Comedy. Mm-hmm. I can do all that. And he goes, and, and I said, but we, and we both know why the Academy won't do it. Why? Because the Golden Globes does it. And they'll never, never, never take anything from the Golden Globes. Is that so? Yes. Yes, they won't say that, but that's what it is. Wow. You know, you know, a, a good idea. I don't care where it comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, you know. But that's the reason. That's the. I, there's not a doubt in my mind. That's the reason. Interesting. You know, and comedies never win. Did comedies mm-hmm. ever win? Uh, no. Well, a couple of times, Annie Hall won, and mm-hmm. uh, Shakespeare and Love's romantic comedy. But that's been about it in the last hundred fifty years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Not many comedies. They don't because you gotta put them in a different category because mm-hmm. if somebody's playing a mental patient or you know mm-hmm. or if they're playing a, you know an alcoholic or a challenge thing, you know, it's like whatever it is, that's acting. Yeah. But if you're Jack you know, if you're doing a comedy, you know, that's easy. And yet everybody knows comedy is much harder. Dying is easy, comedy, comedy is, is hard. hard. Um, do we have uh, yeah. questions, Pete? Yeah. Okay, let's let's go. Uh, let's see. Uh, Valari Blaze asks, "What was it like working with Robin Williams?" Heaven, heaven, fun. Um, it's great. I mean, he was he was a great guy. He was a great human being. He was just the heart. He was there for you. He uh, he's a special special guy. I miss him a lot. Thank you. Would you? Uh... <laughs> Would you do a sequel to Hollywood Nights? You know, Harpy. Sure. I, I would watch that. <laughs> i go to the theater and watch that. Ten times. Uh, can you talk about Paper Doll? Rose would like to know. Paper Doll. Paper Doll, I think is what she's referring to. Is I, was, I was cast in a play. Paper yes, because she mentioned it earlier. I was cast in a play mm-hmm. that was about Jacqueline Suzanne and her husband, Irving, what was his name? I don't say it's not Mansfield or somebody, and uh, I was me and um, oh Carter. What was her name? Dixie Carter. Mm-hmm. And we were doing it up in rehearsals at the Long Wharf Theater in New Haven. Mm-hmm. And for you know, you know, all these things you talk about creative differences. The director, who and I, you know, the day you know, it wasn't. Great thing, but they never really. Anyway, they let me go on the, on the play before like the first preview, which was like ridiculous. I mean, why don't you see what we got first? And, mm-hmm. you, know, and the, you know, they let me go, and which was so I got fired from that. The play never went anywhere, and then also I think I was much younger than Dixie Carter, mm-hmm. and who was terrific, mm-hmm. and I wondered if that. That maybe didn't feel mm-hmm. right. Could be, but the director and I it didn't work out, so I left the production. You wrote, you've written plays, and <laughs> uh-huh. you've, you, uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. And and when I first met you, you had just done "I Want to Be in Pictures." That's right. With with Genevieve Joy for Gary Marshall. Right. Oh, that was wonderful. Yeah, we still, we still keep in touch, Jenny and I. The uh, no, I, I enjoyed that. 
the uh, so that didn't go anywhere. Interestingly enough, I was doing Assume the Position as a show, mm -hmm. and we did it at the Long Wharf Theater, and they invited me back. I go, you remember you five guys fired me the last time I was here? <laughs> nice. Morpy? That's it. Okay. A lot of, lot, of, lot of viewers. A lot, and also a lot of people talking. I, I've been seeing the comments. Wait, Benny Harrison asked a question at the beginning. Benny Harrison? Do you know Benny? He was, I was, had lunch with him a couple of weeks ago. Okay, ben, I've known Benny's rock and roll. I've been booking Benny since 1985. Yeah, he just played out here in the Greek theater. That's right. With, yeah. um, um, with the Russells. With No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. With Fe Felix. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Benny asked a question way back. Let me see if I can find it. Then he played on my, uh, on, on my comedy special, the Robert Walls World Tour. Really? Yeah. Okay, so tell, so, all right, so rock and roll merges with your life. Tell us about Glenn Fry and your friendship with Glenn, and how did that happen? How did you guys become friends? We became friends. We were both playing golf at the Lexus Golf, Celebrity Golf Challenge in, in La Jolla, mm -hmm. uh, not La Jolla, at uh, Palm Springs, mm -hmm. at La Quinta. And uh, we became friendly there. We would we hung out at the bar together, and we were both at the piano bar. And I love piano bars. So and Glenn and I started, you know, just talking and stuff, and just we became friendly. Mm -hmm. And and then I then uh, I had him on Arliss, and we became friendlier. Mm -hmm. And then we just we just became pretty good friends. Mm -hmm. And then uh, he was in New York, and I was in New York. And we started hanging out much more together. And then this project came along. Um, which was we, we talked about doing he, he talked about doing a theatrical musical version of Hotel California, so um, so I got good time, you know so I tried to help him with it uh, and it, it, it's unfortunate because Glenn died you know we were we were workshopping it at the uh, University of Michigan great people there great program great mm -hmm. just great but I tell you Madonna's daughter played the witchy woman so fabulous yeah it was wonderful great experience but Glenn what, gets, what, what Glenn year gets was sick. that what do you think three years ago. Okay. And uh, I miss my friend. We laugh. Boy, we laugh. Mm -hmm. I miss laughing with Glenn. I miss laughing with Glenn. And so, I got to travel with the Eagles. So that was kind of fun. So a couple of days. could that get resurrected? I, I'm no longer involved in it. So I'm mm -hmm. just like, you know, it's not my project. Mm -hmm. It's their project. Oh, it's an Eagles project. Oh, we, well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but you still... Or I have right. nothing to do with it. You have nothing to do with it. Okay. So what do you have to do with so, it? So ahead of you, if you had your druthers, what, what well, speaks always, to you I'm now? Well, I'm always trying to get to you know, movies, made scripts, mm -hmm. but I'm actually mm -hmm. working on a baseball book, which I like a lot. I mean, my love of baseball is uh, really so I'm interviewing people. A lot of good people about uh, the game within the game, which I'm really into. Um, and about, I ask every manager I meet, how much of your job takes place between the lines once the game starts? And invariably they come back and say 15%, 20%. So, right, so my job, so my book is about the other 80%. What goes on with the other stuff? You know, what, what goes on the other stuff, which is fun, you know, so. You know, so writing a book. Yeah. Writing a book. Yeah, taking my hands out of it. Well, I love it. And, and also still writing screenplays? And yeah, not as much, though. I'm just, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming, a, I'm actually doing something with the uh, UCB, the Applied Citizens Brigade, at the end of the month in, uh, in New York. Um, I, you know, I'm really enjoying being an audience, too. I like being in the audience a little bit. Uh, I don't, you know, I've done well enough that I can say no to anything. Mm -hmm. um, You're still doing stand-up at all? Not much, but occasionally mm -hmm. I'll host an event or something. Then I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I have good, you know, haunted events. And uh, <clears throat> and I do enjoy it. I want, I would, I would, I'd like to do another, uh, assume the position. i got all the material ready mm -hmm. to go. So that I enjoy, because that's fun. 
That's fun. But as far as, you know, just, and, and of course you hit a certain age and, uh, you know, the parts just aren't there as much unless you create them yourself, which mm -hmm. they usually do. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I just try to you know, have a good time. I'm, I'm enjoying my life a lot. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's the best thing. Yeah. And that's the luxury you get for, do you? Yeah. For pleasure. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. What's, what's one of your favorite places to go? I love Paris. Ooh. I love Paris. I love Italy. I love Paris. I had a birthday party uh, in Paris. I brought up about 10, 12 people. It was great. It was great. Hi. Well, Robert, this has been so fun. I want to I wanna say hi to Pete. Pete, come out. Come come say hello. Pete George is the rock and roll comedian, in case you don't know. Pete plays guitar, and, and uh, that's part of his act. Can right? I show you? So, where are you going to be, Pete? I am at the Grand Hotel in Las Vegas week after next. Five mm -hmm. shows. Wow. Five nights, and then uh, all of December, I am doing a tour of Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. Woo! <laughs> and then back here, uh, New Year's Eve, um, two shows at the Ventura Harbor Comedy Club. Very cool. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for doing this, Pete. Um, this was awesome. <laughs> awesome. Love uh, it. Thank you. Thank you so much yeah, for doing this. Um, it's been such a treat, and um, we have to eat. Yeah, I got we have to. We know we, but I, I mean, aside from now, we have to go eat someplace wonderful. Oh, okay. Yeah, we, and we'll go with Drew. And we'll go sure, someplace always, wonderful. Always good to go with Drew to go eat. Always good to go with Drew. Thank you so much, Robert. You're welcome. You're welcome. And uh, we'll see you next week. Um, Terrence Blanchard, who wasn't with us last week, will be with us next week. And uh, Terrence wrote the uh, score for Harriet, the movie that just came out. But he also did Black Klansman, which he's done like all the Spike Lee films. He's a brilliant, and he's a trunk player. He's brilliant. Yeah. So we'll be back with Terrence next week. Thank you so much, Pete. Um, we'll see you next time. Thank you.